fun to be with you guys as we uh, kind of turn our attention towards Christmas. Our tree is up. We've watched Home Alone 1 and 2. And so there is this shift that happens right after Christmas time where we begin to kind of turn our attention towards Christmas. As Jason said, we're like three and a half weeks away from uh, the Christmas. And so one of the things that I've just been praying about for us and for our community is I think that we have some adjustments to make as we as we think about what is quickly approaching. And so um, I ran my first marathon when I was 24 years old. One of my uh, um, cousins uh, was this ultra marathoner, which means that he runs 50 miles and 100 mile races, which is like it's it's horrible to even think about imagining that 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 type of distance. But I was getting married and I wanted to be in the best shape of my life, and so I started to run, uh, started to train for this marathon. The most I'd ever run is a couple miles, and uh, so my cousin gave me some really good advice as I started to train. And this is what he said: He said you have to start with the end in mind. You have to picture yourself crossing that finish line in the feeling of pure accomplishment and of joy. Because if you can't see where you're headed, you will never find purpose in your training. And I think that's really good advice, not just for running races, but I think that's really good advice just in general, that we begin to think with the end in mind. And so that's what I'd love for us to, for us to consider this morning before we kind of get into our Sunday morning message. And so we're going to be diving into a series for the next four weeks as we kind of tell the Christmas narrative leading up uh, to Christmas Eve. And so it's, we're going to call it a gift no one expected. And we'll be begin to prepare our hearts for the birth of Jesus in about three and a half weeks. Super grateful for our time to do that. But one of the things I'd love for us to consider adjusting this year is how we begin to approach Christmas Eve. You know, Christmas Eve around here is a massive, massive, massive deal. It's, It's really the pinnacle of what I think is the holiday season for a lot of us. And so here's what I want you to do. Would you close your eyes just for a second? And I want you to picture Christmas Eve. You got your ugly sweater on. You've just come from that Christmas meal. Your family's getting in the car. You're coming up here to worship. We tell that familiar story about a God that steps down into his creation And as the night draws to an end, we pick up our tradition and we sing Silent Night by candlelight. And as all of the candles are being lit, what I love about it is the only thing you see are everybody's faces. Whose faces are you seeing right now? When you look down your row, when you look at Who's sitting next to you? Whose face is being all lit up? Now, open your eyes for a second. Here's what I'm going to ask you to consider. Whose face did you see? Did you see like your friends, maybe your family? Um, Here's the tweak I'm going to ask us to make this year. What if we began to think about the end as we start this holiday season What would it look like if this Christmas Eve, rather than us having a great moment with maybe our immediate family and maybe a friend, what if you and I were the type of community that said, there's always room for one more. 
that we decided this year that when we sing Silent Night together, that there was going to be room for one more person and that we were going to be purposeful about inviting and investing and purposing our life on pursuing other people this holiday season. So when it comes to the 24th, that this place is packed out, not because we care about having just a packed out place, but because we care about creating home for every person in our community. How powerful would that be if we got the opportunity, if God actually began to use you to create home for other people this holiday season? Last year, we ran about 900 people at through one of our services, which is, a, which is unbelievable for the size of our church. We had about 900 people come through. And this year, what would it look like for us to say, oh man, there's always room for one more. What would it look like for you if God used you today to do the impossible on the 24th? That you began to actually pray and purpose your life, not on just your family, but what about your neighbor? What about your coworker? What about your friend? What about your family? Maybe that doesn't even go to church at all. Did you know, because I looked this up, statistically speaking at Christmas time, if somebody is not connected to church, if they don't go anywhere, even if they're not a believer, eight out of 10 times, if you personally ask them, they will say yes. That's unbelievable, you guys. That's 80% of the time at Christmas season, if you personally invite somebody, they are likely to say yes. And I want us to be a community that seizes that opportunity, that says, that matters to me, and I'm gonna start with the end in mind. And so here is what I'm gonna ask you to do um, for the next 24 days with me and with our leadership here in the community. We have created a couple of different resources um, we wanna put in your hands. So the first one are these just real, real simple little invitational cards. And it gives you all, we wanna pass them out. If you wanna have the, everyone pass those around right now. Um, these are getting passed out to you and they're just little invite cards that have the information about our Christmas Eve service on it. On it. I'm asking for you to take a couple, pass those out to your friends, neighbors, coworkers, whoever you might bump into. And then on top of that, we have our yard signs out front. So I'm going to ask that every family grab one yard sign, stick it in your yard uh, um, today, and let's begin to personally purpose our lives on inviting people. And then we have these little magnet cards. And this is what I would love for you to consider doing with us uh, this year is to Pray about who's your one person. Who is one person as we light the candles and we sing Silent Night together? Who is that one person that God might place in your life to where if they should, showed up, man, can you imagine what a great gift that would be to you personally? That you get to worship with that one person that you've been praying for for the last month or so. And so I'd love for you to take a card can write their name on it, stick it on your refrigerator, but be purposeful about praying and pursuing them. So our staff and leadership will be uh, fasting every Friday morning for this. And so if you've never fasted before, it's really, really simple. Nothing super uh, um, difficult about it. Fasting is simply a time in the scriptures where they, people come to a crossroads or an important decision or they want some sort of breakthrough. People would turn to fasting. And fasting is about the removal of something and then replacing it with something else. And so we're asking you to remove breakfast every Friday morning four times leading up to Christmas and instead use that time 
to pray about the about who your one person is going to be. And so let's be a community that starts with the end in mind. Okay, so are you guys with me? Can we do that? I'm super excited about that. And so my prayer is that we have over a thousand people here on Christmas Eve. And I believe that we can do it because I believe that's always God's heart to invite people to have a home on Christmas Eve. And so I'm very, very excited about that. Say, grab your Bibles. If you want to turn over to Matthew uh, chapter one, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, Just so you know, we always create resources for you. And so we've been talking about the Bible app for the last couple of 12 weeks as we've gone through Romans. So I just want to make sure you are aware of it. So on your phones, if you have the Bible app, if you open up the Bible app and you look on that, you will see three little lines at the bottom of the page. And if you click on the three little lines, it will pull up a little section that says events. And if you click on events, when you pull onto the campus of Riverside, Riverside will magically pull up right there. And if you click on that, it will go ahead and put all of the scripture, all of my notes from today. And so just some other announcements, other stuff that you have coming your way. And so I'd love for you to take advantage of that. But if you are turning over to book of Matthew, and I might ask you, okay, who are some of the very first followers of Jesus Christ? Some of you might say, well, Peter, maybe James, maybe John might be some of the very first followers of Jesus Christ. And I would say, no, you are wrong. Actually, some of the very first followers of Jesus Christ, as described in the book of Matthew, goes way back even further than that. And Matthew would suggest that some of the very first followers of the Messiah, of this Jesus are Mary and Joseph. And so today we're going to be turning our attention to Joseph, who is one of my all-time favorite people to talk about in the Christmas story, because I think his message is just so powerful for us. And so if you are visiting or new to uh, us on Sunday morning, as we say the Shema on Sunday morning, which means simply to listen or to hear, it's found in the Older Testament as well. In the Newer Testament is when Jesus' uh, followers come to him and ask him, what's the great commandment? He says part of the Shema. We say just the first couple of lines in Hebrew because that's the language that Jesus would have known it in. And we think it's powerful to have his words on our lips and the language that he would have known it in. It's one of our fun family traditions around here. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand Say the Shema with us as we begin to prepare our hearts to receive God's words. Let's say the Shema together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Kah, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone of the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. God, we love you. We love your word. We love as it As we read it, it reads us, God. May we see things we've never seen before so that we can do things we've never dreamed possible before, Father. We believe, God, that your voice is alive and active and that we can hear it. May your voice speak loudly to us this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, friends. Matthew 1, we're going to start in verse, uh, verse 18. It says this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce 
her quietly. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the scene of what's going on here in the scripture in verse 18. It says, he was pledged to be married to Joseph. You, your scripture might say he was betrothed. And so what exactly is that idea of betrothal that they're talking about? It's actually um, a Jewish custom called Kiddushin, where a young man would be uh, would come together with a young woman and they would enter this betrothal period. In a betrothal period, it's not like being engaged. It takes engagement one step farther. And so during the uh, betrothal period, by all practical senses in everyone's mind, they would consider this couple married. But the nuance of that is they could not live together nor could they come together in any type of intimate way, which I think makes it a pretty horrible tradition, right? That you're married, but you don't get to live together and you don't get to be together. But that's what betrothal was. It was this period of about a year where you would come together and you would be considered married, but you did not live together, nor did you get to enjoy being intimate together as husband and wife. And so one of the reasons uh, for this uh, for this year-long waiting period is because... Uh, Remember, at this time, the families would have arranged marriages. That means your family and the, their family would come together. They would talk. They would make this arrangement about uh, y'all getting married. And the family would make them wait an entire year just to make sure that the bride was not already pregnant. Does that make sense? So during this betrothal period, it was a time and a, a, a season where the husband would go back and build the house and prepare uh, to receive his wife, and also a time where to make sure she honestly wasn't pregnant. And so that's what it would look like. And so, but in every other practical way, the community would have considered their ma- them married. Their family would have considered them married. Their friends would have considered them married. That's why in the scripture right here, it says, but... But uh, the Messiah came uh, about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found out to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Next verse, it says this, that Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. That's why the idea of divorce is there, because betrothal was one step further than actually an engagement period, an engagement period, but it's actually, they were considered married. Now, so imagine this, if you will, just for a second. Imagine that you have been waiting a lifetime to get married. Your family and her family have come to the table and they've agreed. We believe this is a good thing. We believe this is, marriage is a gift from God. And so you get married. You're betrothed to one another. You go back to your dad's house and you start building a place for you and your bride to live in. She goes back to her family for this waiting period. And all of a sudden, you find out your bride is pregnant. Can you just imagine how devastating that might be for Joseph? That he's been waiting for his wife in this betrothal period for a year where he's had to restrain himself from being intimate with his wife. And one day she comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, I have something really just unbelievable to tell you. I'm pregnant. And it's not with another man with the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the whopper of the tale Joseph thinks she's telling? I'm sure Joseph was like, 
oh, sure, that sounds just about right. And I'm going to go ride my pet unicorn around in the backyard a little bit because my wife is pregnant through God's baby. Are you kidding me? And so let's see what Joseph actually has to say about that. Verse 20 says this, but after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived inside of her has come from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage. That's the betrothal period. He did not consummate their marriage until after she gave birth to her son. And he gave him the name Joseph. I mean, why did God have to do it this way? Didn't it just complicate everything? Think about really what they gave up. This baby ruined Joseph's reputation. Remember what it says. The angel did not go to Joseph's family. The angel did not go to Mary's family. It did not go to their friends. It did not go to their community. It did not go live on Facebook to make the announcement that this was good, holy, and right before the Lord. It only went to two people. And their reputation just got tarnished. Imagine Like if there was a yearbook, when they look at Mary's picture in the yearbook, they would have said, that girl, I always knew that girl, something was up with her. Do you remember when she got pregnant by God's baby by through the power of the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine that? Mary did not get the the dream wedding that she uh, had probably grown up dreaming about. She didn't get her friends and her family to walk her down the aisle and to celebrate this um, beautiful season. And neither did Joseph. This pregnancy was ruined by somebody and not by some terrible mother-in-law that was just making life so hard for both of them. But this pregnancy, this season, this incident was ruined by no one other than Jesus. He came and crashed the scenario of what they expected. And so today, this morning, I want to show you just real quickly, just a couple of different things that I believe that we can learn from the life of Joseph. These are not things that Joseph just walked out, but I believe that are patterns for everyday living. And so I want to show you just a couple of them this morning. Here's the first thing. Joseph chose a life of trust and obedience. Think about it. Joseph had to actually believe the impossible and then he had to bet his life on it. He had to believe the impossible and then orientate his life on everything. He was left with the decision, do I decide to believe the impossible or do I actually cut and run? What a great question for us this morning. What a great question for us to consider. Does my life look like this? Does my life, is my life marked by a life of trust and then obedience, those things cannot be separated, trust and obedience. They are married together. They are the uh, different sides of the same coin. They always go hand in hand. A life of trust is always followed by a life of obedience. Or you might be able to say it this way. um, You can't have faith without your feet. 
because your feet are the tools that God gives you to walk out your faith. Does your, is your life marked by a life of faith in your feet? Is your life marked by trust and radical obedience to the things that God has spoken to you? And I can almost guarantee you, if you are bored in your faith, if you are in a dry, dusty season where you're like, I don't even hear the Lord right now, I can almost guarantee you it's because you've separated the two of these things. Where your faith has not activated your feet to walk out the things that God has placed on your heart that he's invited you to do, that somehow you have given yourself over to some moral code or moral pursuit rather than a life that is marked by radical faith and your feet walking out your obedience. Just this last week, I, was, uh, I got to go to lunch uh, with a young couple getting married on the 21st of this month. Super fun to get to go meet with them and talk with them about their wedding. And uh, she is graduating from medical school in December. Sugar mama, right? He, he lucked out. And uh, you know what they're going to do afterwards? They're getting married in December and you know where they're going? They're both going to go live in Honduras for the next three months and go serve on the mission field for three months as she is studying to prepare to take all of her exams. And you know what her pastor said to her at breakfast or at lunch that day? Oh, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> that? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Are you sure about this decision? And can't you just imagine that Joseph probably heard those words echoed to him too? I mean, are you sure you want to do that? That sure as heck doesn't make a whole lot of sense to take Mary home as your wife. Don't you know that Babies just, the, the babies happen a certain way, and if it's not yours, it's probably somebody else's. Are you sure you want to take home Mary as your wife? And you know what uh, this girl told me? She goes, what else am I going to do but be faithful? What else can I do? Because a life pursuing Christ is a life marked by radical trust and radical obedience. Even when it's difficult even when it doesn't make any sense, and even when you do not understand. Listen, I, I, I get this part. Jason came up here and we talked about the offering on Sunday morning. I understand because I'm like you. Um, I mean, I see my budget and I see my finances and I'm like, holy cow, this is, this is getting kind of interesting right now, especially in the holiday seasons. And it'd be easier not to be generous with all of my stuff, but, but I can't just escape this place where a life that pursues Christ best is a life marked by radical trust and obedience. Even when my budget doesn't look like it's going to happen, even when I'm scared, even when I'm uncertain, even when I can't see a way forward, my faith is activated by my feet, walking it out in obedience. What a great question for us to consider this morning. Is your life marked by radical trust? and radical obedience to the things of, of Christ. Second thing is, I want to show you this, is that G Joseph chose life over what was right. Catch this. When he found out that Mary was pregnant, her life was literally in jeopardy. So the first time that Jesus's life was actually threatened was not at the cross or during his ministry. The first time that Jesus's life was actually threatened when he was in the womb. It's not a new thing. And so according to the Old Testament law, she, she could have been put on the outside of town and stoned to death because of 
of this child. And Joseph had a decision to make, to do what was right according to the law or to do what actually brought life to the circumstance. Now, here's what I've been thinking about this last week. I think Joseph is the stand-in father for God. It's a pretty powerful thing to think about. And I think that Joseph was a good dad. And I think he taught his son many, many things. And one of the things I think he taught his boy was this principle, that you choose life over what is right. Now, because I think it shows up in the life of Jesus in all of these different places. Do you remember when Jesus is healing people? What is their complaint? Why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Why does Jesus do that? Because he chooses what is, brings life over what is technically right. He's fulfilling it, right? When Jesus meets the woman who's caught in adultery, well, what's the law say to do? You bring her to the outside of town and you stone her. And, what is, and yet, what does Jesus actually say? All right, who, who has the, without sin, cast the first stone. What is he doing? He's choosing what brings life over what is right in that circumstance. When Jesus bumps into the lepers, these are the people that you don't touch. These are the marginalized of society. Don't you dare become part of them because then I may get infected too. And what does Jesus do? He touches them. He grabs the most marginalized people of society and he grabs them and he touches them. He chooses what brings life over what is right. And I want to be careful about how we talk about this because this is not permission just to be like, whatever, do whatever you want to do as long as it brings life. I mean, come on, we've been in the book of Romans for 12 weeks now. Certainly that's not the intent. But what I think um, uh, Joseph actually teaches us, what the life of Jesus actually shows us is that it's actually an invitation to choose the most faithful response. It's an invitation to choose the most faithful response. When you, I know you don't do this because I don't do it in my home, but when you fight with your wife and you are wrong about something or maybe she's wronged you and you have every reason to be upset about something, well, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna choose what is right and step back and hold a grudge? Because, I mean, she's done something that's really hurt me and so I'm gonna do the right thing and kind of withdraw. Or are you gonna step in and choose life? to offer grace and mercy and forgiveness because tomorrow's coming and I'm sure it'll be my turn, right? What about um, uh, the Christmas holidays are here and you get invited to your 50th Christmas party with those people that you don't really enjoy being around that if you're really honest are kind of super annoying and you don't want to go because you want your time off is so precious, what are you going to do? Are you going to do the right thing and just kind of stay home and do your whatever? Or are you going to do the thing that actually brings life? When it's easier to forgive, when it's easy, or when it's more difficult to forgive and easier to put up walls and resentment, what are you going to do? Are you going to do the right thing or are you going to choose life? I think this is important uh, imagery that Joseph shows us here is that Joseph, I believe, taught his boy the most faithful response is always to choose life. And Joseph modeled that for us at the very beginning of the, before Jesus was even out of the womb, when his life was first threatened for the right first time, he chose what brought life over what was right, the most faithful response. And here's the last thing I think we can see from Joseph's life. 
is Joseph was willing to embrace inconvenience. Do you realize just how complicated the birth of his boy, um, how much that complicated his life? Do you, can you imagine being Joseph and trying, once you are engaged, once you're betrothed to each other, trying to go to her family and say, listen, I promise I didn't touch her. I did not touch her. And having to have that conversation with her mom and dad, can you imagine trying to have that conversation with your friends, with your community, with the people that love you the most that you're close to and trying to get them to wrap their, their brains around? Listen, I know, I know what it looks like, but I promise, I promise, I promise. His reputation must have been just tarnished. I mean, no wonder there's no room for this couple at their inn because these kids are a bunch of liars trying to slip one past everybody. Now, here's what I want to say this morning. This is really important. Please catch this. Is I'm afraid that the Christian, I'm afraid that the universal church to be a follower of Christ, we've bought into this lie that says this, that the Christian pursuit, that following Christ is always going to be a life of convenience and comfort. And I just don't see anywhere that reigns true in the scriptures. Do you ever see Jesus do this? Come on in tight. Let's circle up. Let's make sure that you guys are really comfortable Let's make sure that you guys are really safe and you never get stretched and you never get bumped because I want to make sure that everything is really convenient for you. Do you see that anywhere in Scripture? I don't see anywhere in Scripture where that reigns true at one ounce of it. It's actually just the opposite. Following Christ is often a road of discomfort, of stretching, of pushing, of uncertainty, of a life filled that's marked by faith. It's never really convenient. Do you know why um, our children's uh, volunteers volunteer in the children's ministry? Let's be clear. Not because it's convenient. <laughs> it's not convenient to volunteer in the children's ministry. It's not, volunteer, it's not convenient to volunteer in our student ministries. It's not convenient to show up to their sports games and watch them and cheer them on like they're your own kids. But you know why they do that? It's not because they're conven it's not because it's convenient, it's because they're committed. It's they're committed to the fullness of what Christ has in store. It's looking at those children in the student ministry and saying, if this is the the, the body of Christ and I'm a part of this body, whether I got kids or not, somehow God has entrusted those kids to me. And you dang straight that I'm gonna bring my full self and every ounce of who I am. And I'm going to treat that kid like it's my own. That it may be the only time during the week that those kids hear a word of encouragement, blessing, love, or experience any of that. And if it's up to me, as long as it's up to me, I'm going to bring all of who I am and give my best. I'm going to go serve in the student ministry. I'm going to go serve in the Hope Center. I'm going to go serve in the loft. Not because it's convenient, but because I'm committed. Now listen. I certainly understand that not everybody in here is called to every single ministry in the church, but a question for you to consider this morning. Do you have a ministry, do you have a place that's inconvenient for you that you serve? Do you have a place that's inconvenient for you, for you to serve? Because let's be clear. I mean, adopting children, 
fostering kids? Ask anyone if that's about convenience. Absolutely not. You know why you, you foster or you adopt kids? One reason and one reason really alone. Because God said to care for the widows and the orphans. It's not out of con- convenience. It's out of being committed to the call of Christ has on them. Sharing Christ is rarely, rarely ever convenient, especially for me too. I'm just like you. It's not convenient to share Christ. I feel awkward and weird and strange. I would much rather go spend time with, and I don't mean this to sound weird, but like like my really good friends. I would much rather huddle up and talk about my life and the things going on with them than make room for one other person. That's more convenient for me. It's more convenient for me to say, you know, I've got all the friends I can handle. There's not room for one more. But when is the way of Christ about, inv- in, uh, about embracing what is convenient for you? It's not. I was at the gas station uh, just this last week and this l- lady at the gas station, I, I talked to her all the time. Hey, how's your day? Oh, my hands hurt real bad today. I, I, I think I have bad arthritis. All right, give them here, give them here. Let me pray for your hands real quick. Do you realize how weird and awkward I feel doing that? It's not, it's not, I don't do it out of convenience because everybody behind me in the line is already upset at me. It's not convenient for them either. I feel foolish. I feel weird. I'm like, all right, I'm, just, I'm committed. I'm in. It's not because it's, uh, it's convenient. It's actually just the, op- it's just the opposite of it. Do you, I just believe I believe this is just so true for your life and for my life, but nothing good will ever come out of convenience. You will never grow spiritually by doing the things that are convenient for you. That's not how you get strong. That's not how you build muscle. That's not how your faith gets stretched and grown. Do you know why we are always, always bugging you? Listen, take another step. Do something. Go on one of our mission trips. Serve in the student ministry. Start by being a giver on Sunday morning. Do all the, why do we ask you to do those things? Now, listen, we know it's not convenient for you, but do you know why we do that? Because that's the way you grow. That's the way that you exercise your faith. That's the way that your faith activates your feet is by walking out those things, even when it's uh, difficult. Do you know that your spiritual health is greatly determined on your willingness to be inconvenienced? That your spiritual health is greatly impacted by your willingness to be inconvenienced. I believe that's just totally true. That's why church can never be a thing about convenience. Like if you're coming to church and you agree with like everything that goes on, if you, feel su- if you feel super comfortable all of the time, if you're not getting pushed, if you're not getting challenged, if you're not getting called out, if somebody is not asking more of you than what you're currently doing right now, I'm not sure it's really honestly a great fit for you. I don't know what else to say. Church should be a place that's like going to the gym. Ain't nobody like going to the gym. It's uncomfortable. It, it stretches you. You have to do things you've never done before. You have to run. You have to put weights on. But you do it because that's where you gain the muscle. And I believe that's a picture of the church. That's, that's what the church is supposed to be about, a place where you are constantly being stretched and pushed and made uncomfortable. Why? Because that's how you grow in the Lord. That's how the, your faith muscles get strong. That's what I believe the Lord is inviting for you. That's why what you see here on Sunday morning and what you see in our community 
It's not the finished result because we are willing to do anything uh, um, to be inconvenienced if it pushes us to be more faithful to the things that God has called us to do. Your spiritual journey hinges on your willingness to be inconvenienced. Now, honest question. Is that true for you right now? Because I had to swallow a big pill this last week and think, whoo, if my spiritual life hinges on convenience, am I healthy? It's something I think the Lord might have in store for us this morning. Because if we pursue convenience, if we pursue the easy road, do you know where that takes us? Nowhere. (laughs) Nowhere. We get to the end of our days and we look back and we say things like, I lived a half measure. I held back. I didn't go two feet in. I was passive. I didn't risk enough. I didn't risk more. I wasn't more courageous. And it leads only honestly to a life of regret. What I love about the scripture is that these are real words, real stories that were recorded for us to hear. Do you know what the Bible says about what Joseph said? Do you know what the Bible records about the words that Joseph, the the stand-in father for God? You know what Joseph's words are written in here? Absolutely nothing. That the stand-in father for God himself, Joseph, there is not one word in all of the scripture that we have recorded that Joseph ever said one thing. Not one word. Why is that? Here's what I would ask you to consider this morning. In order for you to receive the gift that no one expected, I don't think it requires for you to say one thing. You know what I think it requires you to do? Just take one step. To take one step of faith. To wait, to take one step of obedience. To take one step into uncertainty. Joseph, the stand-in father for God, never says one word with his words. But he sure says a whole lot with his life. So what would it look like for us to be the type of people that live a life of trust and obedience, faith in our feet, a life that is greatly, we are constantly putting ourselves in uncomfortable circumstances, being inconvenienced, writing names on the card, thinking about the end in mind as we begin to head in toward the Christmas season and wonder and watch and see what God might do with your yes this morning. Because that friends, that's something I'll give my life to. That's something I think where you will find the life that Jesus intended, where he says, I've come not just to give life, but give life abundantly. So we are growing and stretching and uncertain and uncomfortable that we find the muscle to do the things that God has intended us to do.